We are back, baby. We are back. That's we right. are back. You are looking live. We get after it. You know, we jabber jaw. We go tit for tat. We have our little differences. Let's get funky like a monkey. And here we go. Hello and welcome to the Moose and Runes podcast. This episode 164, part of a weekly double dip coming your way. We did not hit you a week ago, so we give you two in turn. And we have a special guest on this episode of the Moose and Runes podcast, NBC Sports' own Pat Boyle. Going to talk a little bit of Blackhawks hockey, looking back at Edmonton, looking forward to Vegas, sprinkling a little Bears and college football on the back end as well. It was a fantastic conversation from one of the absolute best in the business. Can't wait to get you to that. Uh, we are going to get there in just a couple seconds. But first, Matt Rooney, I ask you, how are you doing today? You know, I'm just happy that I got not only Matt's hockey minute, but like a Matt's hockey half hour. Like usually I just <laughs> get the 60 seconds on the pod, maybe a buy or sell question if I'm lucky. Today we got go. a full 30-minute 30, 30 episode. I got you to participate in a hockey interview. I'm a happy man. Usually I have some minor complaint. I'm good today. I'm good this morning. Fantastic. Uh, before we do get to that pod, we are recording here on Monday, so depending on when you're listening to this, this news could be dated, but the college football season appears to be up in the air. Uh, our CBS Sports insider Dennis Dodd reporting that a number of uh, Power 5 athletic directors – think that it's inevitable that this season is canceled or at least moved to the spring in the coming days here. Uh, the hashtag we want to play hashtag we want to coach is coming out on Twitter with coaches and players obviously voicing their opinion that they want to get this thing done and they think they can do it safely. Uh, we don't want to delve too deep into this because there is likely to be news here in the next 24, 48, 72 hours. We are going to bring you be bringing you a second podcast here in the coming days on the heels of that news, kind of with some more reaction on concrete news. Uh, but Matt, uh, unnerving, if nothing else, uh, the recent news about the college football season. Yeah, you know, obviously I think for the last couple months we thought this might be something that could happen um, and now it's it's more, more or less coming to a reality. Uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, the other leagues that were able to play, granted it's a different situation because they're professional, not amateurs, they're not student-athletes, uh, were able to get in a room, come up with plans, come up with safety guidelines, all that. And it kind of seems like the NCAA didn't really do that, just kind of twiddled their fingers for a few months, decided to pull the plug on it, which is very unfortunate. Um, not necessarily all that surprising from the NCAA. Uh, but it, it's, again, it, it, nothing is fully official yet. It's definitely leading that way, and, you know, it, it sucks. We, uh, we're, we're a podcast that you know, thrives on football and we're all going to miss football this year, but mainly just more bring home the reality of the situation of what's going on in our world right now that everything's not all that great. It's a bad situation. This would have been a nice, you know, outlet exit from that exit from that more of an outlet, but uh, hopefully we can get this thing figured out sooner rather than later. So we can have football next fall. Uh, well, that, that's what it is right there, Matt. And I think you hit at the crux of it is, uh, for so long, decision makers and policy makers to an even higher level have shuffled their feet regarding this virus. And here we find ourselves with no control over it, no understanding of it, and, uh, and an inability to ignite the things that we love like football. And it's unfortunate. It is a reality. Uh, but the true root of the issue here with college football and the idea of amateurism is liability. Mm -hmm. Schools are liable for the health of players. Uh, it, it's why when, God forbid, we see these moments when a player um, 
you know, gets sick or, or even fatally is ill from heat stroke during these summer practices. Unfortunately, we see it every few years. Um, these universities do become liable. Um, there's been situations uh, outside of things like that where they are liable for the health of their student athletes. And with a lack of understanding of this virus, liability becomes a great issue. And I think that that's no there is in no way, shape, or form is that something that these universities want to have to deal with. So whether or not we believe we can play football safely this year, the lack of understanding of this virus is what's working against us most greatly. And I'm not rooting against football. I hate this narrative of people rooting against football or rooting against a fall season. I'm simply laying out facts of what these decision makers are dealing with right now and what they're having to weigh uh, in their cost benefit analysis of what is it going to take to get this done and are we going to be liable and have blood on our hands god forbid something happens and it's unfortunate but it's where we are because the lack of expediency which with this was dealt with and not to go too morose or too dark here, but it's where we are. It's unfortunate. We keep our fingers crossed. We hold out hope that we will have football, college, NFL, hopefully both in some capacity this fall. But I think we're once again in a place where we're led to expect the worst or prepare for the worst and hope for the best. um, Let's just hope golf keeps us going. Hey, how about that PGA championship? Colin Morikawa oh, now man. with more major champion or with equal number of major championships as missed cuts. Uh, the kid's been on tour for about a year. Now three wins on uh, in his PGA tour career. He now has a major hits an absolutely so career defining drive on number 15, 16, 16 was 294 yards to seven feet drains the Eagle puts the nail in the coffin. I love everything about this kid. And I think that moment at 16, CBS and the cameras did such a great job of capturing the moment. They got the shot, and then they cut back to Morikawa as he's handing his driver back to his caddy. He still had the steely look and the focus of an absolute killer. And then his caddy said something to him along the lines of, what a shot, how about it, a perfect shot, something along those lines. And just a childish grin came over his face. It was the perfect recognition of moment and youthful exuberance of, holy crap, what did I just do? And I think that Colin Morikawa, or at least in in the infancy of his career, has been the perfect mix of those two. Oftentimes we see the laissez-faire approach of Dustin Johnson that's got him where he is with 21 wins and, and, you know, playing bridesmaid over and over and over in these major championships. And then you have guys who maybe don't take themselves so seriously on tour. I think Colin Morikawa toes that line really nicely, and it led to a major championship on Sunday. Yeah, it was fun to watch. Uh, I got to watch most of the back nine of it, and that shot was one of the – it doesn't happen every major – um, but, you know, once a year, it seems like there's just one shot that kind of, you know, leaves mm-hmm. you speechless. The defining speechless, moment. That's your, your jaw-dropping shot. All majors have their, you know, defining shot, you know, defining moment, the one where you kind of knew that guy was going to win. But this is one of those that took it even a step further. It was just like a, holy hell, how did he just do that? And it seems like he's, if he wasn't already trending that way, has kind of firmly implanted himself in that mix of, you know, the top-tier golfers now, you know, the JTs, and- the Brooks, the DJs. He's kind of put himself in that upper echelon he was already trending that way but this win really just firmly you know entrenched himself there you know it it seems reactionary but it's not because everything he's done on tour is you know trending doesn't even do it justice Mm -hmm. because of how short of a time he's been on tour this time last year he was finishing up his career with cal 
um, playing collegiate golf. So to see someone make that sort of step forward in a year's time, it, it was poetic in many ways. A kid from California in San who played his golf less than 50 miles away, to getting it done in San Francisco at a beautiful municipal course. And, and, you know, just to even go broader here, I think the PGA Championship should be played on munis. I think they should find the, the world's or the country's best municipal golf courses, ones that will open up to the public two days after so you can go out and play it too. You know, the PGA Championship has struggled to define itself. That's amongst, how they can brand themselves. That's how Kinda they can like brand the themselves. the People's Championship. Exactly. And I know the, the U.S. Open is supposed to be, you know, America's Championship, the People's Championship, whatever. But you're playing that at country clubs that you and, and I, you know, will likely never. You're playing at and Wingfoot and, you know, we can't play it, it, there. Hard to find a tee time at, at yeah. such courses. But, you can't get us on uh, a Shinnecock? I cannot. Okay. A couple of calls, we'll see. But TPC Harding Park is opening up to the public on Tuesday. Uh, they had 50,000-plus rounds of golf played on it last year. Well, once again this year, it's great for the game. It's great for a branding standpoint of the PGA. Great to see a kid like Colin Morikawa come out and do it on a public golf course. Awesome stuff. I mean, we can go for hours here, but we got to get to our Pat Boyle interview. There's just so many golden statements, Easter eggs in this interview that we do with Pat. He was absolutely fantastic. Uh, so, Matt, I, I guess without further ado, here's Pat Boyle. We are now joined by the incomparable Pat Boyle of NBC Sports Chicago, a longtime friend of the podcast, longtime colleague of both Matt and I, a, a man who has opened doors and a man who we are lucky to have on the podcast here. Pat, we like to open up every single podcast. I, I do a little wellness check on Matt just to make sure everything's okay. So I'll do the same here for you before we get into all these topics. How's everything uh, in the life and times of Pat Boyle? Oh, everything's good, you know, Joe. It's uh, good to be on with you and Matt. First of all, I've known you guys for a long time. Uh, I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, things are good. Things are good on the home front. We're uh, we're happy to. I'm actually happy to be going downtown and not doing everything from my my office via Zoom. <laughs> so it's it's kind of we've been doing the TV thing from uh, you know like everybody else, a lot of people yeah. via Zoom. Uh, but now we're we're in our back in our studios and we actually had sports to talk about and it's been uh, it's it's been fun the last two weeks. It's felt normal. Let's let's just say that or, or at least somewhat normal. Yeah, relative to what we've been dealing with over the last few months. Awesome to see you guys back in the studio. That uh, brand new, beautiful studio over there at NBC Sports Chicago. You guys are doing great work as always. And as you said, sports to talk about here. One perhaps we did not expect to be talking about at this time of the year, uh, regardless uh, of what was going on in the NHL. The Blackhawks kind of pull a little bit of surprise to many of us here. We're going to dive in. Uh, let's talk Edmonton before we move forward to Vegas. I know everyone's excited about getting these playoffs started here on Tuesday, opening round against Vegas. Puck drop 10.30 Eastern time. Uh, but we, we got to talk about Edmonton, how we got to this point here. Uh, for me, you know, watching this team from afar, uh, I haven't been as dug in as years past. But, you know, I watched games in the regular season, and it was largely disappointing, especially on the defensive end. And then they come out against Edmonton with what looked like a vintage playoff jump out of the Blackhawks. Uh, Pat, what do you attribute that to, uh, just kind of this renewed life? Is, is it the layoff or a buy-in or just the senior leadership? Where did this come from? I think, Joe, they, they were embarrassed with their last appearance, meaning the core guys, in the playoffs and, and getting ousted by Nashville a few years ago. And I think they vowed, if they ever got the opportunity again, that they were not going to perform like that. So they came to this training camp 2.0 
And they hit the ground running. I mean, I, they were flying around the rink. I was impressed. I was like, I, I, I couldn't, I kept turning to my colleagues. I'm like, am I seeing the same team that I, that I saw before the pause? I, you know, everybody came in good shape, up tempo. Um, I was like, wow, they're, they're really going to go to Edmonton and, and try to make something happen here. And the biggest question mark was, well, okay, goaltending. And the fact that Corey didn't show up until the last day before they left for Edmonton. So to think that, you know, Corey was going to ramp up in a week for quote-unquote playoff hockey, I mm-hmm. thought that was a, a, a reach or a stretch. And it kind of showed. You know, like he, he wasn't fantastic in the first three games. I thought he was pretty good in two of them. But uh, he was stellar in game four. So I think over the last two weeks, he's gotten the rust off. I think that uh, they have a legit top line with uh, Kubelik, Saad, and Taves. The, the, the question mark is, you know, where can they get depth scoring against this, this Vegas team that they're going to go up against. Uh, I think that's going to be their biggest problem. But they look like a different team, Joe. They looked defensively. They weren't coughing up the puck as much as they had been prior uh, to the pause and giving up so many high-danger chances. So they've improved a little bit. But I, I also think, too, Edmonton is a two-trick pony, right? They're McDavid, they're Dreisaitl, and there's not a lot else on that team. Five on five, they had a, a uh, negative goal differential during the regular season, and I think that, that came to life and, and proved that that was the Achilles heel of this team in that four-game series. You know, Pat, I think all year, we've been, not even just all year, the last two, we've been talking about how bad, inconsistent the defense can be. Um, early on in the year, Calvin DeHaan really changed that, and then obviously he had the shoulder issue. They, they really missed him. How big of an impact did he make in this series coming in, being able to kind of form that shutdown for Connor Murphy? Yeah, I thought for sure that that was the, uh, the difference in the series on a defensive note. The fact that you got Calvin DeHaan back was, you know, one of the gifts of, of having the lengthy pause that he was able to come back from his second round of shoulder surgery in two consecutive years. Um, and I actually got to see him. We played a little golf before uh, the training camp, so I was a- able to see that uh, that shoulder, and I was like, this guy was hitting the ball 315 off the tee. <laughs> I, uh, I, knew, I knew we were going to be okay as far as uh, whether his shoulder would be able to hold up in the uh, – in the playoffs. So, so far, so good. I thought they were great. And I think, you know, they're going to be leaned on, uh, you know, to be the shutdown uh, pair for the top line of Vegas. Uh, Before we do get towards that Vegas series here, just on a broader note, uh, NHL playoffs wise, we head into the actual playoff setup. Now your your normal tree, but we head in uh, without Crosby, without Malkin, without McDavid, without Matthews, without all these big names that it's a sport that's never, I guess, relied on the big name, maybe the way that the NBA has or even the NFL has. It just seems like the NHL from a star standpoint, I mean, we got guys here in Chicago, obviously, and, and Vegas is going to get their, their guy back and Max Pacioretty, and there's going to be stars there, but the biggest names, kind of the 
the guys that the NHL hangs their hat on not going to be there. What does that say about the setup? What does that say about the playoffs and maybe uh, what we're going to see moving forward here? Well, I, I think, you know, all bets are off here in 2020. I mean, like, yeah. is is excited as I am for the Blackhawks to be quote unquote, you know, in the field of 16 in the Stanley Cup playoffs. I mean, they're not a playoff team. They were, you know, they were in 12th place at the time of the pause. They were, you know, six points out of the final wild card spot. They had less than a 5% chance of making the playoffs. They took advantage of the opportunity that was given to them, just like Montreal took advantage of the opportunity. And so did the Coyotes. I mean, we've got uh, two 12 seeds and an 11 seed moving on. So, you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, you know, this is a, a, a true example of where the NHL is at as far as, you know, star power, but it's completely different than the NBA. You know, like the NBA is a player's league. They decide where they want to play. They decide, uh, you know, who's going to, what, what star is going to play with what star. And that's the way it goes. The NHL isn't quite like that. And you'll see, you know, we're going to see Nathan McKinnon on this stage. And, and we're going to get to, you know, see how they, they respond, you know, in, in light like that. But we're going to see Kane and Taze as well. And I thought that was one of the, the bright spots about the Oilers series was, Jonathan Taves uh, plays like he normally does on these stage. We we had the stat in closeout games. Uh, the Kane and Taves have both played in 22 elimination uh, games. They've got 29 points each in those 22 games, and the team is 17 and five in those games. So I mean, when when the chips are down, the the, the Hawks two cornerstones come to play. And, you know, they, they, they are still a calling card in this league. I mean, you know, I know Jonathan gets upset, and, and probably rightfully so, like when the talk came up of uh, the NHL going back to the Olympics, uh, Team Canada put out, like, the, the 2022 preliminary roster, and he's nowhere to be found on that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like – a couple of years ago, he would always have been on it, you know? It, it, it would just have been a matter of what line you'd put him on. So I think he gets motivated by things like that, and I think they are making the most of this opportunity. Um, and I do think all bets are off with this, this format. I mean, I think this is unlike, you know, any other year for obvious reasons. There's no crowd situation. Uh, you know, the team that that has been through some of the adversity that like the five or six guys that are on the Hawks that have won championships. I think they can set a tone and, and keep a team that's the youngest in the, in the tournament, uh, keep them on track. I think it's a good blend right now of veterans and young guys on this Blackhawks team. Yeah, really interesting mix of that uh, veteran experience in the playoffs mixed with uh, the youthful jump. But uh, looking forward to this Vegas series, it is going to be a tall task, as you mentioned, just from a statistical basis. I mean, during the regular season, this is a Golden Knights team that ranked number one in most offensive statistics, even five on five. 
and a Blackhawks team that ranked near the bottom of the league in most defensive statistics 5-5. Five five. Does not bode well from a number Got him right where you want him. Said, yeah, exactly. <laughs> as you said, kind of throw it out the window a little bit here in what we're seeing in this uh, rejuvenated tournament. But in breaking down this series and looking forward to what it's going to take for the Blackhawks, you talk about maybe that lack of depth in scoring. Uh, what is the path of least resistance for the Hawks if they're going to try and get this done against the well, defensive-minded team like Vegas, they they really play a, a disciplined uh, defensive style, and they look to to counter on your mistakes. And I just look up and down there. I mean, that top line of William Carlson, Pacioretty, and Mark Stone. Mark Stone's a beast in every zone, and he's he, he comes up with with turnovers. He he he, you know. Is great in transition, and oh, by the way, he can also help set up and finish at the other end. I mean, I think Mark Stone is is a guy that is going to cause the the Blackhawks fits. And you look at the statistics; like they were number one, the Golden Knights in even strength shot attempts from the slot at at twenty five per game. They were getting off twenty five shot attempts from the slot per game. I mean, that <laughs> just... to the net, I guess. Yeah, I mean, but, like, against a team that, like you, you mentioned, Joe, struggled so much defensively, um, the only reason why the Hawks remained afloat and were in the 12 spot was because of Robin Leonard and Corey Crawford and what they were able to do with all of those high-danger chances and stop most of them. So... The only formula I can see for the Hawks to, you know, pull off another upset is jump on this Vegas team in game one or two and and thinking that maybe Vegas playing those three round-robin games and not playing for their quote-unquote playoff lives like Mm -hmm. the Hawks had been with Edmonton, that you may get a team that's not quite ready for the pace that we'll see uh, come Tuesday night. That That's really the only scenario where you, where you get a lead in this series because Vegas is not quite up to speed because they were doing the round-robin thing and not playing a, a real hard-fought series. And maybe you change the dynamic and the, and the pressure begins to mount a little bit on them. But I think this is going to be a real tall task for the Blackhawks. Yeah. Do you think that having that matchup with Edmonton where the Hawks kind of had to get thrown into the fire, getting used to that real high-end speed? I mean, obviously Edmonton's fast as a team as there is in the NHL. Do you think that's going to help them going forward with teams like Vegas where it's going to not necessarily slow down the game? but they're used to kind of playing at that playoff pace, high-level speed that they're going to be going forward. Yeah, I I think so, Matt. I think especially, like, I I do think the Hawks are playing at a a higher pace right now and have been for the last week and a half than the Golden Knights. I thought the Golden Knights, I watched their their, – their final game against Colorado, I thought they both teams picked it up and realized there was there was a top seed at stake. But I, I still didn't feel like it was at the the speed that I was watching McDavid and Drysaddle and the Hawks uh, take on the Oilers. So I, I do think the teams that are coming out of the qualifying round, I do believe, have a slight advantage early on in their series against teams that are coming out of the round robin. Strictly from pace of play 
intensity and physicality too. And that's something that you know, we haven't even mentioned about about Vegas, but they, they bring that with Ryan Reeves. I mean, that guy led uh, the NHL in hits this year. He is a, he's a wrecking ball out there at all times trying to cause turnovers. So um, I think, you know, Vegas brought some physicality in their third and final round-robin game, but uh, they're ready to ratchet it up here when uh, things get going on Tuesday. All right, last thing for, for the Vegas series for me, the 1,000-pound the panda in the room. Um, our, our, <laughs> friend, our, our old friend Robin Leonard in between the fights, you mentioned him earlier. Uh, I know when he was here, he was pretty well-liked in the locker room, but on his way out, he didn't necessarily have the, the best things to say about the organization, and then he's been a little bit active on Twitter um, the last couple of days with people chirping about the matchup. Is there any extra motivation, do you think, on either side, maybe from Corey Crawford, maybe from Robin Leonard, either way? Um, about kind of wanting to one-up their, their counter, not his counterpoint now, but the guy they were going back and forth with earlier this year for playing time? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think Robin, the crux of his issue was they were trying to get a contract done, and uh, the, the Hawks gave him an offer that he didn't like. He, he came here on a one-year deal, prove-it year, and he thought he had shown that he deserved a multi-year deal and expected to get that and said as much in the media. The Hawks don't like when you negotiate through the media. So it kind of uh, poisoned the waters a little bit in the conversation. And Robin thought he was really lowballed by by the Blackhawks. And that kind of ended the – right before the trade deadline, that kind of uh, – I, I guess it would uh, – change the relationship, so to speak, between the, the two sides. So I think there's some bitterness on Robin's side. I'm sure he would love the opportunity to, you know, knock out the team that said goodbye to him. Uh, from Corey's perspective, he's such an interesting cat. Like, he just, yeah. like, nothing seems to phase or rattle him. You know, like, he handled the whole Leonard thing excellent. He just kind of took it as, you know, we've got – two great goalies and we're both going to play uh, a good amount and he wasn't going to get into this who's 1A, who's 1B. Um, I, I'm expecting Corey to uh, build upon his game four performance where I thought he was he was vintage Crawford. I mean, that was a goalie win in that final game with the number of, uh, the number of shots that he saw in that final game. So I think there is going to be um, – you know, nice little storyline between these two. Uh, but for me, Leonard is probably the one that's going to have a little more venom and a little more uh, bite to some of his uh, sound bites that we hear. And I don't think Corey's going to play that game much at all. Yeah, Crow, uh, calm, cool, and collected, and it will likely take another uh, seismic performance from the man to get this thing done or at least even have a chance against Vegas. I mean, we've talked about it or touched on it a little bit here, but the youth movement here in Chicago and the invaluable experience that they're getting some guys first time out here with some playoff puck, uh, looking forward to past this year and even past this year, a lot of questions are out there for the Blackhawks right now, including the blue line next year. Who's going to be there? Who are the young defensemen that we have to look forward to? And maybe how valuable is that experience for them in these moments here in this coming week? Well, I mean, Boquist was, you know, a kid who came in as a rookie this year and is, 
he saw top pairing minutes and he's been paired with Duncan Keith but you you've seen that when games get tight down the stretch they went to five D men and Bokwis was the odd man out you saw you know Keith and Murphy out there together you saw Mata and Cuckoo and Dahan as well but you didn't see a lot of Boquist uh, in tight games down the stretch. It'll be interesting to see how they handle that in this upcoming series. We're going to see Ian Mitchell next year um, from Denver. Uh, they expect a, a puck-moving defenseman uh, that that they have high hopes for. Uh, I think we might see Nicholas Bodan. I, I I wasn't overly impressed with the the limited time that uh, you know he saw in training camp with the team. Um, but all in all, uh, you know, we're going to see Don and Murphy back. I think Duncan Keith had a really solid year. I, I thought, you know, to me right now, he's a, he's a two or a three defenseman on a, on a really good team. And depending on who he's paired with, that can elevate his game. So I still feel that Duncan, even though he's 37, has a couple of productive years uh, to go, and the big question remains: You know, what are you doing with the the Brent Seabrook contract? The, yeah. the six point eight million dollar. He still got four years left on his deal. Um, it's a handcuff. It's yeah. it's and especially in this uh, post pandemic situation where the the salary cap is going to remain flat for the next few years. So you know, the, the Hawks have always been in kind of sal- salary cap hell. Um, since they started winning uh, cups in 2010, and this, but this contract in particular has completely hampered them and paralyzed them from doing a lot of the things they would like to do. Like, oh, by the way, you know, you know, keeping somebody like Artemi Panarin, a you know, mm-hmm. a Hart Trophy finalist, and not dealing him for Brandon Saad uh, and keeping him long-term would have been been something you could have considered if you're not paying some ridiculous amount of money to to Brent Seabrook, whose best days are, you know, four years ago. Yeah. Now, you brought up the cap there, and obviously this offseason they're going to have some decisions to make Kubelik say what's a restricted free agent. Strong's a restricted free agent. Crawford's contract's going to be up. They have the expansion draft coming up. Like you said, they have some some young names on the blue line coming up that'll probably be ready to go next year. Do you think there's a chance you could see a buyout candidate in like an Ole Mata, even though he's been solid, but he's got four and a half? Brent Seabrook probably out of the question. You think there's a chance, you know, Seattle could take him on in a draft for a first round pick in exchange, kind of like Vegas did? Do you think there's a way they can kind of creatively navigate their way out of some of those big numbers? Uh, it's going to be tough. I think Mata is definitely a buyout candidate. Even though, like you mentioned, he has performed pretty well here in the opening uh, qualifying round. Uh, the situation with the expansion uh, Seattle team is anybody that has a no-movement clause automatically cannot be exposed in the draft. And as mm-hmm. you guys know, uh, that was one thing that Stan kind of passes out like if their Tic Tacs are these no-movement clauses. Pretty much everybody has one. Um, including Brent Seabrook. So to me, what they have to do is, you know, talk to these players and say, look, like if, if, for instance, if it's Brent that you want to move, say, look, Brent, this is the reality of the situation. You right now are the seventh or eighth best defenseman, you know, on our team, or maybe sixth. 
if, if he comes back and, and performs after all those surgeries. And we're going to have you in and out of the lineup. We're going to play, uh, you know, two out of every three games, something like that. If you can live with that, then you can then you can stay. But if that's not what you want, and if you feel like your reputation and all the great work that you have done in your long career here in Chicago is being tarnished and, you know, your name isn't what it used to be, let's pick a landing spot. Give us two teams that you would like to go play for. Yeah. You know, we'll, we'll get you to that one of those cities you you waive your no movement clause. You you leave Chicago not as a guy who's sitting up in the press box and who's going to voice his displeasure with with the media about you know not being the you know it, it would be really hard for him to watch Keith and and Kane and Taves and those guys play every night and and he not be not being on the ice. Um, so I think there's a way to do it where you kind of work it with the player and say this is the reality. This is your age. This is what you make. We can't do what we want to do. You're not seeing the ice as much as you would like. Let's pick a spot that works for everybody. So that's the type of scenario I could see. But that really takes um, both sides to be upfront and honest with one another and, you know, trying to find some common ground. Uh, Otherwise, it's... It's going to be interesting, and I really do think there's a possibility that, you know, a key core member could be moved at this, whenever this offseason is, in November. Um, I do think there is uh, an opportunity or a chance that, you know, they talk to somebody like Taves or Keith or Seabrook or Saad, and they say, look, this is what we would like to do. Um, we need your help to do it, and uh, we want to uh, put you in a, in a good spot to, to flourish. But this is this is what we see for the future of our team, and unfortunately, to accelerate the reboot, we need to to move one of you guys. So I I could see that happening. An unfortunate reality we might be dealt. Uh, all that glitters is not gold, Pat Boyle, but uh, we do like shiny things here. So here is to enjoying at least the next week of Blackhawks hockey. Uh, to pivot hard here, we do like to wax poetic about our Chicago Bears here on the pod. Matt and I usually we put the gloves on. We figure things out on the Moose and Rose podcast. But... Um, I guess to to just kind of touch upon the Bears here and this oddity of a training camp that we're going through right now, the quarterback situation that the Bears are looking forward to, uh, I know you do great work uh, with Pro Football Weekly. Uh, Just looking at this quarterback scenario in Chicago, how does one construct or go about uh, having a quarterback competition in the year 2020? What is this going to look like? Or are we going to be like Fenwick Friars, JV squad, split squad throughout the season? Is (laughs) Is this what we're coming for? Yeah, I, I think we're looking at a, a Nick Foles starting uh, opening game for for the Bears for sure. I don't think you you give up draft equity, you give up twenty one million guaranteed. Um, you he has all those connections to all the coaches on the staff. Um, I don't think you 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 make those kinds of uh, of moves and not put the player on the field. I, I think this is a prove it year. For Nagy, I think it's a prove-it year for Pace. It's certainly a prove-it year 
for the offense, and I think they have the opportunity or time to waste. And I, I, I just listening to both quarterbacks, even you know, I, I feel bad for Mitch. I really do. I mean, it, it, Mitch, it, it, it wasn't Mitch who decided that he'd be the second overall pick. You know, in the draft, um, I, I just think. He's just not a, a talented quarterback. He's he's a good quarterback. He's got the capability of maybe being a really good backup someday, or maybe he could turn into a Nick Foles uh, a few years down the road. But I just don't. I, I don't think that his time in Chicago, uh, you know, it, it hasn't worked out so far. I don't see it, it working out in this odd training camp situation, no exhibition game format that we're going to be a part of. And when I listen to both of the quarterbacks talk, Nick sounds like a starting quarterback to me, and Mitch sounds like a guy who's lost, who's trying to tell you what you want to hear. And I just, I've always felt like there's a reason why, you know, Mr. Mr. Football in Ohio didn't go to Ohio State, and there's a reason why he went to North Carolina and then didn't start. And there's only a, there's a reason why he only started 13 games there and mm-hmm. didn't perform exceptionally well against good teams. I mean, like the writing is on the wall. I, why Ryan Pace never saw this, I don't understand that. But uh, yeah, I think this is. Nick Foles' team, and I think just a matter of time before he's your starter. Who's going to command your huddle? I mean, that, that's that's what it comes down to here. We're dealing with such a small margin of difference in talent. Like, Mitch has those intangibles, but who's going to be able to execute in the moment, lead the defense, and, and really execute those split-second decisions? And who is the huddle going to believe in? I don't think it's ever been Mitch Trubisky. Um, not to get too far uh, down this road, I think Matt has one more for us here before we, uh, before we say goodbye. No, no, we're we're recording this on Monday uh, Monday morning, so nothing has really been officially been uh, decided yet. But it does sound like the the Big Ten will be one of the conferences to pull the plug on football here uh, in the fall. We know you're a big Michigan State guy, Pat. What, what's it like staring, you know, no Michigan State football in the fall in the face for you? Yeah, you know what? It's it's going to be odd if that's the way it, it it plays out, and it certainly sounds like that's the way it's going to be. Um, I would be okay with you know these conferences trying to play in the spring. I think that would be the smart and prudent decision to to try to postpone uh, fall football. Uh, you know, have time on your side. Hopefully, advancements are made vaccine wise, um, and you're able to put together some sort of a, a conference schedule in the spring and then you'd have the quick turnaround the following year if you were able to play in the fall. So that would be my best case scenario that that we we saw some sort of college football season and that it got pushed to the spring, but it's going to be odd guys. I mean, and, and I don't know where you guys put the chances of the NFL being able to pull this off. They seem, it, it seems odd even the way this, this training camp is going on. It's like, it's going on only in 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 thought only. Like I I I don't I don't see how this NFL season is going to be completed. To me, it just doesn't make sense. When you talk about who's going to command the huddle, the huddle is the definition of of, of not being socially distant. And you, you know you've got guys 
you know, breathing into each other's face on the lines. And, and oh, by the way, they're, they're players that are over 300 pounds and who are at high risk uh, to, to, you know, to be affected uh, by COVID-19. So, you know, I, I just don't see the NFL being able to finish their season. I think they're going to start it. But I think uh, it's unfortunate, but I think college football would be smart to try and, and make it happen in the spring. You know, what we've seen here from players, at least in Major League Baseball, is that if they are going to make it to the finish line, it is going to be on the players to be socially distant, to self-quarantine, to keep themselves at team facilities where they can hopefully stay healthy. Uh, but mm-hmm. so many moving parts, so many variables, and, and when you – start talking about spring ball at the collegiate level, I mean, then the the idea of eligibility comes into play. Are you going to grant those underclassmen an extra year so they can play in the spring and then turn around that fall and try and play once again? Then you guys got guys like Trevor Lawrence, Justin Fields, who are looking forward to an NFL draft where they stand on April football. Just, just a lot going on, but here is the hoping that we get football in some capacity this upcoming year because we know it does uh, drive our falls, and from a selfish standpoint, we need it on the Moose and Runes podcast, just like we need Pat Boyle here. Pat, we cannot say thank you enough for uh, giving us the time here, talking uh, Blackhawks and beyond. Uh, enjoy the time. Enjoy the uh, the Hawks this week and hopefully beyond. And uh, we hope to talk to you soon here on the Moose and Runes podcast. But, again, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me, guys. Keep up the great work. We'll talk down the road. You hopefully, got we can get you, uh, hopefully we can get you to preview the, uh, the Western Conference what, semifinal series? About, about a week or two from now? Absolutely, absolutely. Blackhawks, okay. Blues, a little rivalry matchup? Something like that, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, guys. I mean, what else needs to be said? There you have it, Pat Boyle of NBC Sports Chicago, an absolute professional. Uh, doesn't even do him justice. One of the best in the business on all things sports. Gave us... Uh, really nuanced takes there with the Chicago Blackhawks, uh, kind of echoed many sentiments we've made here with the Chicago Bears. Uh, Wasn't necessarily thrilled to hear where he's at and how he's feeling about the NFL season, but uh, I see where he's coming from. Obviously, uh, we're we're left to deal with college football and the news in the short term, but hopefully NFL can hold out and give us something to hold on to this fall. Uh, Again, Pat Boyle cannot say thank you enough to an absolute GOAT here on the Moose and Roots podcast. And we're very lucky. The guys that we have, you know, now adding Pat to that list, the guys we've been able to have, you know, locally that we kind of know from our, our time at work, just able to hop on the pod for 30, you know, 30 minutes between Cap, between Mark, between Pat. We're, we're very lucky with the uh, the, the knowledgeable uh, resources that we have around us. Uh, the startling comment for me was when he said the, the possible movement of one of the, you know, major core members. Uh, mm-hmm. when, when he threw the name Taves in there, that one scared me a little bit, and I don't think do. I don't think it'll get to that. But mm-hmm. that's you know the startling reality of of this Hawks salary cap is like all options pretty much have to be on the table, with the exception of Patrick Kane. But even then, you know the old adage is you know, no one's untouchable, and if anybody makes you the right offer, I mean they're they need to exhaust every option they can to get rid of Brent Seabrook to try and get rid of Olimata, maybe include Brandon Saad in that much you don't want to how, how good he's been uh in these playoffs and kind of right before you don't you'll want to have to do that but that's the reality of the situation and the you know 6.8 million dollar albatross in the room yeah it's um 
interesting times. I mean, just from a, a roster standpoint with the Blackhawks and what they're going to try and do and moving forward. But, uh, you know, let's put off future problems for current we'll glory and joy as the Blackhawks. Fingers crossed, Brett Seabrook's in Seattle next year. And that's just that's the go. biggest one to go. Especially release, now the Kraken, release the Kraken to Seattle. It probably, probably takes you a first round pick to get him there. But he's from, you know, up there in D.C. It's, it's a young team. He can go be a captain, be a leader, get himself back on the ice for a while. That'd be a great spot. Just throw him a first round pick. Let's call it a day. I'm I'm completely behind it. Uh, Matt, uh, we will talk again soon later on this week on the tail end of whatever news comes out of college football, hoping it is positive or in the vein because uh, college football set to kick off in less than a month here and more questions than answers looming over the season. But for now, we say goodbye. For Matt Rooney, I am Joe Musa. We will talk to you guys later on this week. Hope you enjoyed Pat Boyle here on the Moose and Dreams Podcast. May God give you for every storm a rainbow, for every tear a smile, for every care a promise, and a blessing in each trial. I swear I've seen a lot of stuff in my life, but that was awesome. <laughs> Chicken on the steak was phenomenal. Yeah!